Good morning, New Hope. I'm still Tom. <laughs> or Pastor Tom. Uh, and I've already heard the joke, what's up, Doc, a few times, so just skip that one. <laughs> it was a marathon, just uh, working on the degree, but also a lot of spiritual growth that took place. And I want to say thanks, especially to those of you who have been around, encouraging me, praying for me, supporting me. And it's just been a good process of going through. We had surveys that we did with some of you, and then some interviews I did with some of you all. And there were very spiritual times, really, other than when I had to analyze the quantitative data. data. That wasn't real spiritual. But um, the rest of it was really good growing process. My topic was during times of suffering, how we grow more Christ-like, what are the factors that lead toward growth or lead us away from Christ. And so love to talk to you more about what that is because we all have those times of difficulty we go through. So this morning we're going to start off by reading God's Word. As I took a look at this passage in Malachi chapter 1, it's a passage that I think helps to capture the tone a little bit better if we read through it. So it's the last book in the Old Testament right before Matthew. So if you have a Bible, turn over there or pull out your electronic Bible and you can follow along or you can just listen if that's a little easier for you to do. Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty, it is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring a blind animal for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. The Jewish people had returned from modern-day Iraq. The temple was rebuilt. 
Worship had resumed at the temple. Outwardly, everything looked just fine. Just going along, fine and dandy. But on the inside, in their souls, there was a cancer that was spreading. A cancer of complacency that was eating away at them. And so God brings Malachi, the final prophet of the Old Testament era. And Malachi tells us that we honor God when we give him our best. That he invites us and he calls us to give him our best. Malachi says in chapter 1, verse 1, that he has a burden from the Lord, a burden that weighs heavy on his heart. Now, that's not necessarily reflected in our translations very well, but the wording that is used there is a word of burden. This particular word was used both of a heavy burden that was a physical burden, like a weight or something that they were carrying, but in this case, it's a spiritual burden. He says, God has given me this burden that I need to share with you. And he does. So Malachi calls a family meeting. You know, sometimes if we're parents and we have some important things that we need to talk about with the whole family, we say, tonight, 8 o'clock, everybody gather in the living room. We're going to have a family meeting. And then maybe you say, we've been doing things this way. We've got a brand new way. We're going to start doing things. A lot of times when parents come to know Christ as Savior, this would be the kind of thing that say, we need to go in a whole new direction. Or if there's something really important that needs to be talked about. And that's essentially what's going on here is Malachi says, we've got a family meeting. Let's talk about some things. And this is a hard-hitting passage. It starts off... And it talks about God as our Father. Now there are two times in the Old Testament where God is called Father. One is in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 6. And over in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there's a song that is there filled with references of Israel's rebellion against God. In fact, he calls them in that song warped and crooked. They'd forgotten the good things that God had given them, and now he's bringing this up again, reminding them that God is Father. He's a powerful Father, an authoritative Father. Deuteronomy 32.6 says, Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your Father, your Creator, who made you and formed you? And it causes us to reflect on the fact that though we're created in the image of God, our hearts have been twisted and distorted. We have a sinful nature that takes the good things of God, and we don't respect God in the way that we ought, in the way we live and speak and think. Second time that God is called Father is here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. And there are some ways that this focal point is brought to bear upon us. We're to respect God. This passage is calling us back to a respect of God's awesomeness. God calls us to revere him. We don't use that word much anymore, but this is what he calls us to do. He means for us to revere his strength, his wisdom, his authority, his power. The word is used that he is our master. And this is a little bit of a difficult analogy for us to understand, 
the point the Bible makes is that we're all mastered by something. We all have something that drives us. It might be a passion. It might be an emotion. It might be a relationship, a hobby, a sin. There's something that just moves us to act, to think, to speak. Something that controls our thinking, our speaking, our passions. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. In this case, he said, you cannot love, you cannot serve both God and money. In Romans 6.16, it says that we're slaves to whatever we obey. So the point being made is that we all have something that mastered us, masters us. But the only master who will satisfy our souls is God and our relationship with Him. He's the only one who will satisfy us in the end. The only one who's worth serving. So God's our master whom we honor. He's also our Lord Almighty. NIV has the Lord Almighty. Some other versions like English Standard Version have the Lord of Hosts, which is a more literal translation. And now eight times in these nine verses, that phrase Lord Almighty or Lord of Hosts is used 24 times in the whole book. What's a host? It's not Oprah Winfrey or Ellen. The hosts in the Bible are the angels that God commands. He's the Lord of hosts. He wants us to see and feel that our Father in heaven has infinite authority even over the invisible forces of heaven. He's the ultimate power. He has angels who do his bidding. That's the emphasis early on in Malachi that God's a God we respect in his power and authority. But of course, there's also the fact that God's our loving Father. And these two things have to go together like bread and butter. When we call God our Father, the corresponding truth is that God is our loving Father. And though we're to proclaim him as our awesome father, we're also to rest in his love, in his unconditional love. He means for us to find a childlike peace, security, like a child coming up into a father's lap. And he, he means for us to also experience that awesome reality. And so Matthew 1, 2, he said, I love you. Like we do sometimes, the people of Israel are questioning, does God love me? And God says, I love you. I love you. And he says, I have some hard things to say to you, but I do love you. And so to really understand that this a little bit more, we need, need to jump over to the New Testament. So just briefly, we're going to take a little bit of a detour to understand both sides of the coin, to understand this beautiful relationship that God invites us into, that we proclaim both his power and his love. So in the New Testament, we know that Jesus, when he prayed, he would pray out, 
Abba, Father. What, what is Abba? It's like a little child that says, Dada. It's a word of intimacy, a word of the closest relationship possible. And Jesus introduces us for the first time to this word that we can use of God as our father. He's our, our daddy. We can have that kind of relationship with him. That's the word that Jesus uses. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? The son takes his inheritance, takes his money. He flees from his house, goes and wastes his life with wine and women and temporary pleasures. Not thinking about his relationship either with his family or his relationship with God. Now Jesus tells this parable for many reasons, but one reason is to help us to understand the awesome love of God. And so finally when the prodigal son wakes up and he says, here I'm eating with pigs. I just wasted myself. And he says, I'm eating with pigs and I have a father at home that would be glad for me to be around his table and who would welcome me back. And he's thinking, will they accept me? And so you remember over in Luke chapter 15, and remember that the Father is representing, symbolizing the way that God really loves you. He does. Listen. While the son was a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. What did he do then? You remember? He ran to his son. Wow. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, it says, and kissed him. You know God in that way? Some of us, sometimes we tend to vacillate in one direction or another. We don't under understand God's power or we don't understand God's love. And God brings both to us. He loves, he loves you so much that he can both be a God of power and a God of love. Romans 8.15 tells us that it's the Spirit of God working in us that causes us to cry out, Father! little illustration for a second. When my kids were young, occasionally we'd have some other kids that go with us and we'd go someplace, do something. So some, one time we were over in Fort Dodge at a fast food restaurant. can't remember if it was McDonald's or someplace. But anyway, uh, took all the kids in. So I had my two boys... They were probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that. And then a couple of their friends, and so somebody else was in the restaurant. They looked at four boys, and they said, oh, man, are all four boys yours? Now, I would have been glad to claim them, but only two of them were. Now, if that person had hung around with us longer, they would have heard how my boys responded to me, they called me dad. 
especially if they were in trouble or something. Dad! The other two boys, they'd call me Tom or Mr. Hine or Pastor, not Doc, but they'd call me, they'd call me one of those names. And so somebody listening would have been very easily able to understand those two. They're mine. And so when we call out to God, Father, we call out to God and cry out to God, God, help me. It's a reality of the Spirit of God working in our hearts. It's a part of that comfort that God has designed for us to experience. So cry out to him. We're, we're children of God. To all who received him, John 1.12 says, to all who received him, he gave the right to become a child of God. So if we're a child of God, let's call out to our Father. Cry out to him. He's our Father who loves us. That's part of what Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans 8.15. It's a part of the Word of God. And these two truths go together. Both go together. When the awesomeness of God, when we need to call upon him in his power, call upon him in his power. When your heart is hurting and you need God to grow close to you, call upon him as your loving, caring father, because he does. Now there's an application here for human fathers and others who are in that position to influence children and teenagers. We have the opportunity to impact, impact children and young people to demonstrate who God is. A father who's patient helps a child understand God's patience, gives an illustration of that. Father who's firm in discipline, not angry in discipline, but firm and one who is careful in discipline, helps us to understand that sometimes God disciplines us for our good, not of his love. A father who loves us unconditionally helps us to see that God is unconditional, that God is like the father in the story of the prodigal son, always wanting us to come to him. And we need not fear that he'll reject us, no matter what. He wants us to come. Now, friends, some of us haven't necessarily had good role models in human fathers. Some of us had really good role models. Some of us can say, well, my dad, he was a good role model in this, but not so much in this. Regardless of your experience, and, and all of us as dads, uh, we all fall short too. We all recognize that. Regardless of where you're at, find someone that you can say, he represents that character of God. And he's someone I can identify with that shows who God is. Now moms can also point to who God is. But God is called a father. 
And so that's a place where we sometimes struggle. So find someone who helps you to understand who God is as Father better. Let's go on in the passage at the end of verse 6 all the way through verse 10 and verses 12 through 14. We've already read those passages, so I won't necessarily quote all these verses. Now the invitation then, while Malachi is very hard-hitting, the invitation is to honor God with your best life. I could say honor God with your worship, but your life is your worship. The way you live is your worship. And if I said honor God with your worship, some of you might think I'm just talking about Sunday morning. But we know the truth is that all of life is worship. What are you doing with it? It says the priests were showing contempt for God. Which means they were no longer honoring God and prioritizing God and considering God as important. Now the New Testament tells us that all of us are priests. I know you think, well, there's some churches that call their pastor priests. But the New Testament way of saying is that we are all priests because we all have access to God. Certainly the priests here represent leadership. And those of us who are leaders and pastors and elders, it's a warning and a reminder to us, but it's a warning and a reminder to all of us to come to God authentically and not just go through the motions, not just get tired of religion or of God, not just go through ritual, but to consider who God is in reality. There's a temptation to get bored. I think I've already sung that song. I've already done that. I've already studied that passage. I've already heard that sermon. John Piper does a lot better. Chan does it better. And there's just a temptation for us to substitute religion for reality and not have our hearts moved by God. There's a temptation for us to get going on our weekly routine. we got lots of pressures. But not slow down and really consider, God, how are you in this? What's your part in this? Rabbi Zacharias says it this way. He says, when a person is bored with God, even heaven does not have a better alternative. In other words, if we are bored with God, the God of the universe, then what's really going to get us going? What's really going to get us excited? Some of us have been trained by the world, and there's all sorts of people we know in our networks that think God is boring, right? Now, we can... Proclaim who God really is. We can testify who God really is. But we got to figure it out ourselves first, right? And if I'm getting, I'm just apply it to myself. If I'm getting bored with God, then it's going to be hard for me to have an impact on others. So that's why Malachi gives us uh, this really hard-hitting message to shake us up a bit. And I know 
we don't like to be shaken up. But that's what the Word of God says. Verse 8, he says, you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? When they brought these diseased animals, then the foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it was denying that. You see, because what we need for our sins is a perfect sacrifice. We come to God and we need one who dies in our place for the wages of sin is death Romans 6:23 says what is due for our sin is death but the gift of God offered to you is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and so it says in 2 Corinthians 5:21 God gave us Jesus he who had no sin that's Jesus became sin for us he took our sin. He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's the great exchange. His righteousness for our sin. Our sin for his righteousness. And the Old Testament worship was designed to point to that ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And they were messing it up. Just like we can do. If we don't give God our best, if we don't proclaim through our life and words and thinking and worship and life, God says twice here, He says, Is that not wrong? And we all go, Yeah, it's wrong. To kind of think about this a little bit more, we got Thanksgiving coming up, right? And some of us will be inviting family or friends over for Thanksgiving. And they're all coming to our house. And they start salivating, just anticipating the turkey or ham or whatever it is you're going to serve them. Maybe mashed potatoes and maybe pie of some kind. They arrive at your house. And you say, well, if you want... I've got some week-old chili that's there in the refrigerator. You can try that, see if you like it. Got a couple ham sandwiches. Now, I had some ketchup on it, but, you know, they'll be okay. And then you say, for dessert, if you reach up real high there, I think i got some granola bars up there in the cupboard. They're not going to be real pleased, are they? Because you haven't really honored them. And so that's the analogy that God is using here is that he says, you give me leftovers. And we can fall into that pattern. The question that this passage is putting before us is, do we give God our best? I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer it for me. And know that every day it's a challenge to give God the best of my time, to give God the best of my free time, to give God the best of my monies, to give God the best of my priorities. It's a pretty deep question, but an important question for us to ask ourselves, moment by moment, day by day. How do you think God feels if we give him the leftovers of our lives? So next he says here in 
verse 8, he says, Try offering this kind of thing to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? One time I went down the state house and had lunch over there, and there was Governor Branstad. They weren't giving him leftovers. They were giving him the best of the food there. And that's the analogy that's used there. God says, implore God to be gracious to us. He says, we're in trouble. Let's cry out to God to be gracious and generous to us. And he is. And then he goes all the way. He says, it'd be better. In fact, he says, verses 9 and 10, it'd be better even just to close the doors of the temple if you're just going to go through the motions of worship. Again, hard stuff. Here's the principle. God wants us to prioritize him above everything else in our life. The Old Testament people of God, the Jewish people, they were just messing around. God says, he doesn't want us to just mess around. He says, what is best for us, what is good for us, is when he's first, when he's Lord of our lives. That's what is best. That's the way he blesses us. That's the way we have this relationship with him. When we honor him, as we give our best to him, that's what is good for us. So why? Why do we doubt that? Why do we think otherwise? Because we struggle with the sinful nature. Because we need to call upon the Spirit of God to help us, to move us, to motivate us, to fill us, to be in relationship with Him. And then we need to be moved by the fact that God isn't just a small God, but He's a God of the nations. And so verses 11 and 14 tells us, He says, you've been trying to put God in a box. And you think that it's about me, myself, and I. And so he says, my name will be great among the nations. The Jewish people of God had developed this mindset that, well, God's for us, not for everybody else. A total perversion of the God of the Bible. If you go through and you study the God of the Bible, you'll find that God is the God of the nations, that the Israelites were selected to proclaim this to the nations. And it continues all the way then in through the New Testament to the fact that we are called to make disciples of all nations, every tribe, every language, all over the world. will one day worship before the throne. And so this is proclaimed here. 400 years before Jesus came. His name will be lifted up in every nation, be worshipped by every tribe, every place on earth. 4, verse 14, I am a great king, and my name is to be feared among the nations. He invites us to be about his purposes, his plan, his direction, his truth. Romans 12, 1 puts it this way. You're invited to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your body stands for your time, your energies, your monies, your thoughts, the offering of your best life. 
So what are you doing? What are you doing with your head, your heart, your hands? Head, what we think about. Not only when we're here in church, but this afternoon, we're sitting around the house. We head off to school or work. What are we thinking about? What are we doing? How are we serving with our hands? And what moves you? What really moves you? What gets you excited? Playing video games? Watching the Packers? Some of you say, no way. Making money? thousand other things. What, what moves you? You're offering God your head, your heart, your hands. He says, here it is. Lay it on the altar. Offer yourself to God. That's his invitation. Offer your best life. Not just the leftovers. Lord, help us. These are Real things that enter into every part of our life, and sometimes it is hard. But in some ways it's easy, because it's just a matter of saying, yes, Jesus, here I am. Send me, use me, fill me with your spirit, help me to proclaim you and live for you. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord God, as they choose today and this week, let it be, yes, Lord, here we are, offered to you because of your love for us. You loved us first, so we love you. We want to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.